crack that whip and give those aliens the slip. Oh wait, they're interdimensional beings. This week we're fixing Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, episode 157. This week, we're going to be celebrating the release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny by looking back on the much maligned fourth entry in the series, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, we are going to fix the movie with some pointed suggestions to try to improve the experience for Indiana Jones fans. But before we get to that particular big talk, it's time for... Chris, what's new? Well, not a whole lot, Dave, to be honest. So I'm going with the only electrifying news that we got this week. Um, see what I did there? Uh, yeah, so uh, the Hollywood Reporter uh, has reported that Jennifer Garner is going to return as Electra Nachios uh, in the upcoming film Deadpool 3. This is on the heels of leaked set photos that saw Ryan Reynolds in the Deadpool costume once again, and Hugh Jackman in uh, a half-committed Wolverine suit um, at best. Um, This also follows a bunch of news uh, and rumors that a lot of the Fox Marvel characters are going to be returning for this film. James Marsden as Cyclops has been rumored. Famke Johnson uh, as Jean Grey has been rumored. Um, So a lot of a lot of the the old guard, if you will, of the pre MCU Marvel cinematic characters uh, are expected to be returning. So there's a lot of rampant speculation um, about what the storyline is going to be. A lot of a lot of fans are pointing to something like Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe uh, and something wink at the camera about the Fox acquisition by Disney. Um, it's just really, really interesting. The, the thing that kind of caught me by surprise the most um, was like a lot of fans' positive reception, I guess younger fans than, than myself and, and you, Dave, because our generation we really viewed a lot of these films, particularly uh, the Ben Affleck led daredevil film and the subsequent spinoff of Electro with, with Garner uh, through a negative light was, was not very good quality. Um, So, so to see like a lot of people who grew up, you know, younger, it is like, this is a formative person in the role uh, was, was kind of cool and interesting to see a different perspective um, I will say that I think the world of Jennifer Garner as a person. So again, a, a light news week, but did but did this hit your radar at all, Dave? I mean, uh, did it hit my radar uh, insofar as that I've heard that it was happening? Yes, but uh, I kind of reacted with a with a sort of a protracted huh. 
yeah. it seems like a very very odd choice unless there's something like you know like you said deadpool kills the marvel universe or something something specific that they're trying to do um with this kind of return it seems very very odd and again uh I, i'm i'm a fan of jennifer garner's myself uh there are several things she's done i liked her you know alias and uh that rom-com thir- uh, 13 going on 30 uh, that my wife dragged me to many moons ago which ironically also featured mark ruffalo right? uh, she was very very she was very very good in that um so i'm, I'm a fan right but uh her turn as a lecturer did little to nothing for me um as a as a big fan of you know obviously the comic character so um, an odd choice for sure. Interested to see where they're going with this. Um, uh, I'm taking a wait and see approach here. I, I guess. think. I think my biggest overall reaction to all of this, everything, and maybe I'm turning into the old man yelling at clouds. But Dave, do you remember way back in the day when we were genuinely surprised at the movies? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I saw you say that on social media, and there, there's a lot of. Um, old man yelling at clouds going on with me lately too. Uh, I'm gonna be doing some belly aching in in our big talk today, I think too. But but yeah, I mean, I, I can't argue the point that it, it it reminds me a little bit of um of, of professional wrestling. You know, um, I remember when I was when I was watching in the late '90s, early 2000s. You know, the sort of Attitude Era time. Man, when something happened on that show, it was like one of the most shocking things because you never knew what yeah. was coming. Um, and now everything is sort of telegraphed through like leaks and online news. And it's, it seems very difficult to be surprised by Hollywood, by, by much of anything anymore, really, uh, which is uh, regrettable. It would have been nice not to know about Electra's return. And then suddenly, boom, there she is in, in uh, you know, Deadpool 3. And you're like, what the heck just happened? You know, like that would have been a great WTF moment, yeah. man. I feel, I feel the exact same way. Um when it came to like Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness, like Sir Patrick Stewart returning in, in the yellow chair from, you know, the animated series of the nineties, that should have been like a theater only reaction. Instead, we got that in trailers, like, come on. Um, but I, I guess it's just, maybe that, that is a bygone era because like, for example, I'm, um, I'm I'm really enjoying Marvel's Secret Invasion right now, but I'm seeing a lot of people that are like it's moving too slow, it's not fast enough, and I'm just like, it's a, I guess like there's just like a lack of patience by the general audience, and I think it's like maybe I'm reading too much into this. It's like we want instant gratification in this age of the internet and. Like everything has to happen now. Like, why do I have to wait a week for an episode? I don't like that. Like, um, the most recent season of The Witcher, um, they they released it in halves, and so like, uh, I have to wait until the twenty seventh. But like, I'm okay with that. Like, I'd like building that suspense. I don't understand this need for instant gratification. I need grainy TMZ photos to spoil the costume of Wolverine. And like to confirm that so and so is going to be in this movie rather than just wait for it to release. It's 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 just frustrating to me. Man, be an X Files fan back in the nineties. That show ran for nine years, twenty some episodes a season, and they still two two three movies, and they still didn't answer all the questions that people had. Talk about a slow burn. <laughs> yeah, there was no instant gratification in storytelling back then. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, I think that's sad. Um, 
I, I don't know, man. I don't know what the cause of this is. A lot of people point to stuff like social media and, and you know, uh, diminishing attention spans. But I think uh, streaming has a much bigger impact on that as far as storytelling goes and the binge model. I'm not, I've never been a big fan of the binge model. I like things being, you know, doled out slowly. I'm just um, speculating, that's I'm why just I like speculating week to week. Like, you know, yeah, there's, there's no water cooler talk. moments yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of sucks. Well, speaking of a slow news week, um, I guess this is nerd news uh, in that, yeah. In that all the nerds really use social media in some way, I think it's probably fair to say uh, that um, uh, th- there is a bit of news in that Meta, I still can't believe we have to call that company that, uh, the company formerly known as Facebook, uh, they're going to change their colors to purple, I think. Uh, Meta is uh, has released its own version of Twitter, basically a text-based app called Threads, uh, which garnered uh, like 70 million installs as of recording, uh, which makes sense considering there's a huge built-in um, you know, subscriber base because uh, it links over with Instagram, right? So you just sign in with whatever account you use for Instagram and all your uh, all your people are transferred over and everything. So it's a really easy uh thing to jump into um and there's a whole bunch of twitter um competitors uh right now you know you got blue sky you got threads you got spoutable you got hive there's all sorts of stuff flying around out there but threads is the one that apparently really peed in elon musk's breakfast cereal because within days of it being released apparently uh one of musk's lawyers uh kind of uh i think his name is um uh ah, I had it a second ago. Anyway, so this lawyer basically is like telegraphing that they're planning on suing Meta because uh they hired supposedly a bunch of former Twitter employees, which uh let's remember Elon Musk fired for proudly no good reason gladly other than oh, oh, and rubbed yeah, his, because he, they and, didn't and like thumbed him. his nose at them at those fire firings. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, uh Meta has come back. Uh, and said that's a bunch of uh, crap. No one on the, uh, the quote here from Meta spokesperson Andy Stone was, no one on the Threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. That's just not a thing. Um, but basically, uh, Musk is trying to claim that trade secrets were used in creating the Threads app. Like, you know, I don't mean to sound unkind. And I know that there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, sophisticated software engineering that goes on in the back of this. But like, imitating the general look of Twitter is not rocket surgery, you know, like Hive does something really similar, Blue Sky does something really similar, Spoutable does something really similar, now Threads does something really similar. The Obviously, the problem that Musk has is that all of these others are slow growing, whereas Threads came onto the scene and just like knocked it out of the park Knock, instantly. I, I believe of- it was 70 million users in the first couple of days, and it set a record. Yeah, so so he obviously is threatened, um, and and you know you don't have to pay for a blue check mark, so there's that that's nice, right? Uh, so this, don't, this whole don't, thing don't, is don't just get us wrong. The you silly. can on Meta, like you absolutely can, but you don't have to. Um, so the point uh, that that I'm kind of coming to is simply this: um, the the social media landscape in sort of text based. Uh, social media in, in the Twitter vein is obviously an unholy mess right now with all these competitors throwing their hats in the ring because they are smelling blood in the water because Musk is, uh, in short, running Twitter into the ground in, in all of these different policies. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to kick back, relax, and see what comes out on top. 
but uh, it's it's kind of a real, pardon my French, but it's kind of a real show. Oh God, yeah. Um, I I saw someone on Threads. Um, by the way, you can find you can find us uh, at Nerd by Word on Threads, on Blue Sky, on Twitter, still on Instagram, on Hive, all at Nerd by Word. Um, but it's just it's just funny to me because I saw a thread that was like. Honestly, I'm just going into all of these just to claim my username and then kind of see what what's left, like when the smoke clears. Um, you want to know what's funny? Another person pointed out, Dave, uh, remember last week at the time of recording, we couldn't really use Twitter at all. Um, but threads dropped and it was magically uh, that refresh rate went away. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's incredible how that suddenly uh, happened, isn't it? It's, it's just... And and I said this, there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of grandstanding about, I am leaving Twitter, like, I am so over Twitter. Elon Musk is like, are you kidding? I have a front row seat to watch this idiot run the most successful, probably the most successful social media app, at least amongst, like, journalists and, like, what was... And yes, of course, there's, like, a sad, like, we are almost, like, Trumpian, like distrusting the media because anybody can have a blue check mark and bots but at the same time like like you said it's such like a shit show that i have a front row seat to watch this idiot burn this to the ground by his own ineptitude um the only person who thinks medically correct terms like cisgendered are a slur and anti-straight um just let this idiot like be hoisted by his own petard and this is not to say that Mark Zuckerberg is not an evil billionaire as well. Like he's like he's awful also. So it's just like picking your poison. Like so I'm not this is not a pro Zuckerberg statement, but in the awful off, let's see who comes out on top. I guess I I'm just really to be completely honest with you, just very tired of that whole situation. It's really exhausting. I just want to be able to get on social media and talk about comic books with, you know, like-minded individuals. And I'm just really, I'm just tired, man. I'm just tired. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Uh, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around after the break. We're going to dive into uh, fixing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So stick around. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentle nerds, we are back and it's time for one of our very famous we are going to fix the movie kind of episodes. And since uh, the final Indiana Jones installment was just released, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, we decided to go back to the last time we thought we were going to get the last ride of Indiana Jones uh, in 2008, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, We're going to try to fix it in this week's. Now, as is uh, per usual, uh, each uh, of us has a list of three big fixes that we think would uh, improve the movie. And hopefully we'll come out of the other end of this episode with a slightly better version of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, We'll get started with Chris and your first improvement of the movie. Uh, Okay, so just kind of get this out there. Like... um... 
you actually beat me to the punch here because usually I watch stuff quicker than you. So I was I was surprised. I had the benefit of seeing your fixes and um, I only had really two big ones um, that really took me out. Well, well, three, the three that I had. Um, but the first one you immediately notice at the opening of the film and that even the greatest actors in Hollywoods and ones that I love are beloved to me. And Kate Blanchett is someone who I truly love, follow her work. Um, but the Russian and Slavic accent debacle continues and like nothing will kick the ass of some of the greatest actors in Hollywood than trying to do a Russian accent. <laughs> like it's, it's just not good. Like she speaks actual Russian just fine. But when she tries to do English with that Russian accent, Slavic accent, Eastern European accent, I think I think uh, they say Ukrainian accent. It's just not good, and I'm not, I'm by no means like, you know, in in a, in a in an era where a lot of people are rightfully pushing for cultural authenticity. I don't think Russians are underrepresented. Like they're still white, so like I'm not like saying you have to cast a Russian actress or whatever. Like I'm just saying either lose the accent or maybe cast an actual person that is of that, not for cultural authenticity sake necessarily, but just so we don't have to listen to those awful accents. It's just, I don't, I don't know how to fix the problem, but I had the same um, kind of feeling with black widow and Scarlett Johansson, you know, is fine in that role. It's just, uh, I don't know how to feel uh, Elizabeth Olsen. Uh, the, her portrayal of Scarlet, Witch only elevated in my opinion after she miraculously lost that accent. So um, it's just maybe just a pet peeve of mine, but I, it was the first thing that I was like, Oh boy. Yeah. I think it, uh, the problem with the villain here that needs to be fixed is I think it goes deeper than just the accent. Uh, now, as you've already mentioned, Kate Blanchett is perfect and uh, there's nothing wrong with her as an actress, obviously, although the accent is really distracting. Um, for me, I think there's a script level problem that her villain, whose name I can't even remember, is so one-dimensional and forgettable. Now, Arena, mind Arena you, Spalco, the, the, Colonel Doctor or something? Spalco. Like, they were just, like, throwing those yeah. titles. Like, they were playing darts and just throwing titles at her, but Arena Spalco is the character's name. Let's call her. Let's call her Spalco. So Spalco there is uh, is really kind of one dimensional in this movie. And I'm not saying that the the villains in Indiana Jones movies are always very well drawn, you know. But I think uh, if you specifically go like back to Raiders, for example, or even uh, if you go back to um, the Last Crusade, I think there is much more interesting stuff going on there. You know, you have. Um, you know that search for immortality and and the um, the double cross of of that uh, female character that was hanging out with Indiana Jones. Like there was a little bit more oh, meat the, on the bones oh, the hot, of that villain. Are you talking about the hot sea, as I call her, the hot Nazi, the hot sea? Yeah. Yes, that's really uncomfortable for a German person <laughs> to hear. So, um, um, and then in the first one, you had sort of um, uh, sort of this like untold long running rivalry between. Uh, Indie and that other arc, that French archaeologist. Belloc. Okay, that's right. Like, Um, let's let's get a peek behind the curtain. I did extra homework. I watched all the four indie films, so like they're fresh on my memory. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little rusty. I will admit, but I'm just saying that I think there was a little bit more meat on the bones in some of the past villain roles, and I think this one in particular is woefully underwritten. And I think 
as distracting as the accent is, if there was a little bit better writing, if Kate Blanchett was allowed to play a real person instead of a you know a caricature, I think we would have a lot more fun with that character um, accent, notwithstanding. I think. Yeah, 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 and um, and we'll get more into that uh, a little bit with your with one of your other fixes. But I, I'm excited to talk about your first fix because usually I'm the one that needs the bleep button. Yeah, I'm I'm actually going to censor myself because I'm a good boy. Um, but man, I am so tired of CGI, and I think it's becoming um really apparent when you give a movie a few years and then come back to it. Like this movie came out in 2008, and the CGI in this movie is so so blatant um, and so fakey because C- CGI in the moment is always really interesting, you know. And then you you progress a few years down the road, and then it just ages terribly. Whereas you have, you know, practical special effects that can look a little fakey, but even though they're not, you know, maybe a hundred percent convincing, they're real, they're grounded, they're gritty, and and because of that, they feel more real. There's real weight to them, you know. Um, so I I will ride and die, for example, for the um, the the blue screen work in the airplanes in last crusade you know it's very clearly blue screen um but there's something about it that works because the actor is present there's actually they're actually sitting in something that is real and physically there you know there there is there is something that has weight there and and when you have cg scenes like in the in the in the jungle there in crystal skull when they have the jungle chase um, or even the gopher at the beginning of the movie is like cg it's like these kinds of moments are are really something that take me incredibly quickly out of the movie. I had to laugh because I saw a post on social media that was a scene um, of like a a stop motion uh, skeleton from Army of Darkness, you know, in the sort of in the Ray Harryhausen vein. Um, and I liked that better than I liked CG. It's just there is something that is so weightless and so artificial about CG. That is just, it's becoming very, very tiresome. I think CGI is a great tool to maybe clean up some stuff um, or to to really try to create things that are literally impossible in the real world. But a gopher is possible in the real world. A jungle exists in the real world. So to me, location shoots and practical special effects always trump CG. CG should be used to enhance something uh, when necessary rather than try to create something whole cloth. And there is so much of that in this movie. This movie out of all the Indiana Jones movies I've seen, I've obviously, obviously not seen Dial of Destiny yet. This is the one that feels most like it was shot on a soundstage, you know? And I'm like, what happened to, you know, the filmmakers that went on location? Imagine if they, sh- you know, Spielberg shot all of Jaws on a soundstage instead of actually going to a beach. Imagine if everything that they shot, uh, Lucas shot for Star Wars, uh, wasn't, you know, for Tatooine was not shot on location in in Tunisia. You know, like there is there is a weight and a realness to it. And I will also say that the CGI in this makes the movie seem incredibly clean. And I know that sounds maybe odd. But if you look back, particularly at Raiders, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark excels at this, which is probably why it's still my favorite of the bunch. It feels so real because it's 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 gritty, it's dirty, it's sweaty. If you yes, look at some of yes, those scenes with Harrison Ford, he's yes. got the sweat pouring off of him. He's got dirt dirt caked Mar- on his Marian face. Marion as well. Like when he, they're when they're trapped in that part where um, 
you know where he finds the location he puts like the sun through the thing just the staff and, in, and yes, they're trapped yeah. in there with all the snakes like yes and marion like she's like I, I what i love about karen allen i and i'm gonna make this just like a karen allen appreciation episode i think she's timeless i think she's perfect i think she's effortlessly like a beautiful presence in these films um and i think like one of like the highest compliments that you can you can pay you can pay an actor or an actress regardless of gender is you can dirty them up and they still shine through that and i think both harrison ford and karen allen have that quality in raiders especially yeah i totally agree and and that's really to me the problem is not the performances in this movie for the most part it's that it's that it feels so Hollywood as opposed to being something that's real it's out there in in on location on the ground these people are going through something that leaves them you know dirty sweaty messed up you know that 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 sense of reality is i think what gave raiders its edge and and here that edge is completely filed off with cg and it just it bothers me man it really bothers me i think it's i think it's i think it's a problem too because if there's any franchise that has practical effects and like action set pieces in particular as its calling card, I think it's Indiana Jones and Lucasfilm at large, because, you know, the original trilogy of Star Wars, you know, you have practical effects, uh, you know, widely used there as well. Um, you know, one of my fondest memories about going to Disney world is what it was called at the time was MGM studios. As I got to sit on, on one of those shows and it was an Indiana Jones kind of like recreation of how those things happen. And it was really kind of enlightening, you know, as a, as a teenager to see that. Um, and even in something that is widely criticized and, um, you know, appropriately so as, as temple of doom, I had a really interesting experience revisiting that one. Um, even in that film, some of the action, some of the action set pieces were just top notch. And so it kind of redeemed the film and some of the warts that it has, those action set pieces and those practical effects. Oh, it's almost like a domino of just like, we're moving from this part of the set piece to this part. And then we're going through here. And it's just, just like a masterpiece um, and then to see it kind of, I, what I'm, what I'm afraid of with this film and with what I've seen of Dial of Destiny is it's trying too hard to adapt to the times that it was shot in the, you know, the casting of, of Shia LaBeouf, you know, is very 2008. He's fresh off of Transformers. Um, more on that later. Um, that was the more, just more on that later, but you know, the, the induction of CGI. And now what I'm seeing of Dial of Destiny, which I've heard is wonderful and is is great. Uh, don't let the box office numbers fool you. I've heard great things about this movie and I'm excited to watch it. I might go watch it today, actually. The biggest things that I'm seeing out of it is this de-aging Uncanny Valley stuff with Harrison Ford. So even if I enjoy this movie, it is a little bit disheartening at the very least to see these latest two iterations kind of try really hard to kind of fit into that mold. Yeah, and and I don't know how much of this was Spielberg specifically saying this is how I want to film this movie and how much of this was... uh, 
you know, George Lucas in the background egging him on because, you know, Lucas famously went completely uh, haywire with CG when it came to the prequels, right? And so... When, and when think, in contrast, that, that, when right. in contrast, if you if you do your research, even the tiniest bit, it's George Lucas is the one that we have to rein in because Marion was going to be originally in Raiders a lot younger. And it was already one of the few problematic things about Raiders of the Lost Ark, a nearly perfect film. Like, hey, let's reel you in there, Georgie. <laughs> yeah, Georgie is a little a uh, little of an odd duck sometimes, right? Um, but yeah, so to me, the, the CG is probably the greatest sin of this movie. So the easiest fix there is just to do some more on-location shooting, to bring some people in to do some more practical special effects, and to use you know CGI only to favored use of something like CGI. I absolutely hate a lot of the additions that George Lucas made to the special editions of Star Wars movies. But there was one thing I always did like posit shots for like spaceships or the rancor in particular in uh, return of the jedi is that there was a very strong thick matte line around the objects that were matted on so what they did in the special editions is all all, all that was really needed man they didn't need to do more is they just went in and they used they used computers to remove the matte lines you know so you don't see that it that you know that it was composited like that and it's like perfect that that's all i need man like that that's a perfect use for cgi right there you know you do the practical special effect and then you go in and you clean up the outline so people can't really tell how it was matted in and boom you are you're done there you go that's all i want all right chris what is your second fix for the movie um for me it's it's the movie's greatest sin and it's the only thing well, I say that it's one of the few things that was just like, okay, this is objectively bad. And it's the fridge scene. <laughs> um, like it's, it's just so unnecessary. And I think, and I said this on social media as well, all the 1500, uh, social medias that we have now <laughs> is, um, my biggest observation of watching all these four films in preparation for this episode is how deeply unserious this franchise is intentionally. Like even Last Crusade, which God, I love Last Crusade. I forgot. It was the only one that I really didn't have like a core memory. I had only seen it once before this. And so I didn't have like a lasting memory of that movie, but like it's deeply unserious. Like he goes to Berlin to get the journal and then all of a sudden he gets pushed around the crowd and accidentally hands the journal to Adolf Hitler himself. And so you're like, oh, God. And then he just autographs it in pencil. Like, that's a deeply unserious moment. <laughs> and so that's like par for the course for this franchise. But the fridge is just a bridge too far. It's a fridge. It's a fridge too far. Um, it's, it's, it's just too much. Like, forget like the, the scientific, um, like impossibilities. There's no way he survives that. Like there are some great write-ups online. If you do your research about how it's absolutely impossible. And like, they do this big thing where they're like, this is lead lined. Like it's a product placement for lead, <laughs> like in the film. And it's just, I get what they're going for. And Overall, I think the overall ethos and message of this film of like providing a snapshot 
and this is us being history nerds of like what the 1950s were like with the red scare and being investigated by the FBI. All of that was great, but that was a fridge too far and it was unnecessary. Like he could, they could have done that. They could have even done like the little Pleasantville mannequin town and he escapes and gets out of it a different way. The fridge was too much for me. It's so interesting that you say that because I understand where you're coming from. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to that scene. It didn't bother me as much as, as you know, it, it bothered a lot of other people. Um, you know, um, I understand that it's incredibly uh, unrealistic, obviously, but uh, I always have to think of uh, Temple of Doom when they literally jump out of an airplane in an inflatable, <laughs> yes, like boat. Yes, and I'm and like, wrapped down in the snow in the in the Himalayas. Is that is that any is that any less unrealistic than than this whole you know? nuking of the of the fridge thing i don't think so um i think that the the nuking of the fridge has become a a symbol for uh the grievances that people have with this particular movie and i think it's fair i don't think it's a great moment i don't think it's necessary for the movie but i also don't think it irks me nearly as much as it as it does some others so if you know if it'll make people happy to get rid of this thing, the scene, uh, in order to fix the movie, I'm I'm all for that. But it's just it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers others. Dave, I'm I am fascinated. I've been waiting 24 hours to talk to you about this next point because I was pleasantly surprised by this character. So this, there's really there's really one thing to say about Mutt Williams besides that the name sucks. Um, <laughs> I think. I, Okay, so 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 let's go ahead and do the Mutt Williams thing because I think I think we just absolutely have to at this point. Mutt is not a bad character, uh, and, and Shia LaBeouf's performance as Mutt is not necessarily bad either. Um, I don't have any real problems with the character. I think that what happened with this particular uh, character is simply that people were. Um, maybe not scared, but they got the vibe that he was supposed to be Indiana Jones's replacement, right? And that they were build they were building up to a moment where he's gonna basically take over and the next movie is gonna be, you know, Mutt Williams and the yes, Dial of Destiny yes. or whatever. Right? And so immediately we got a, a, a ton of hate for this character because nobody can replace me Indiana Jones. Um and and so from that point, I understand the, the hesitancy, and I, and I actually liked that that Spielberg played with that a little bit at the end of the movie when you know Mud is getting ready to put Indiana Jones's hat on and has oh, that's great. Ah, that's a great moment! Oh my god, the movie and and really put a smile on my face. So that works. I'm not going to say that Mutt is necessarily a flawless character, though. I think there are things about the character that could be improved to make the movie better. I think they're leaning into um, imagery of this like 1950s sort of greaser character um, without the edge that some of those characters had in the past. Like at the beginning, you get a sense of this is like, you know, a, a pretty tough kid, you know? And then as the movie progresses, he basically becomes just a big old mama's boy, right? I mean, that that's what he is. He's just a big old mama's boy who had fencing lessons, you know? 
And so I think one way to fix Mutt as a character is to lean much, much harder into this whole greaser thing, right? Uh, maybe he's in like some kind of, you know, biker gang or something. Make 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 him more than just visually that character, but make him really that character. Do you, you know what I do mean? You want, do you and want I, him to stay gold? um so i think that would have been um a a very a a very interesting extension of the dynamic you know because it feels in a lot of ways like like mud is like this this complete mama's boy who doesn't know what in the world he's doing but having a character that is capable but in a different way from indiana jones i think would have been interesting and would have been uh, a lot of fun to see them bouncing off of each other. So that that would be one way to enhance the character. Another way uh, to to enhance the character is to just jettison him completely, because um, given Indiana Jones's history uh, throughout the previous three movies as a bit of a shall we say a womanizer, I think it would have been much more amusing and interesting to see him bounce off of a daughter in the 1950s instead of a son. Um, I think there would have been a very interesting dynamic there between, uh, you know, his daughter and him. And and that's actually something that they, they kind of did. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the whole young Indiana Jones Chronicles, that, that uh, TV show that lasted for like two seasons. Um, it was not flawless. Let me tell you, uh, it was basically just like edutainment with a lot of like historical references and stuff. But there were in the original airings of the first season flash forwards to a really old Indiana Jones, like in his 90s. Um, and you find out that he had a daughter called Sophie. Now, obviously, they completely jettisoned that idea when this movie came along. But I, th- I think that might be interesting. And then you get to play around with um, all sorts of stuff, you know, like the notion look at himself and how he treats women right um i think i think there would have been an, an interesting setup there as well so i think there's a couple of different ways you can go to make the mutt character a little bit more uh palatable um and i think it's also really really important and i'm not quite sure how to pull this off but the telegraph very clearly that you're not by introducing a kid you are not introducing the replacement you know what i mean so that is sort of the missing piece. And I think it took way too long in this particular movie to get to the point where where they would say, no, he's not replacing Indiana Jones. Like right at the end of the movie, they were finally willing to make that statement, you know? And I think a lot of the movie feels like an audition for an Indiana Jones replacement, you know? Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you. However, like I found myself like loving the interplay between the two of them before, during and after the reveal. Um but I, if if given the choice between the two, I I think I prefer your first option of giving him a harder edge so we can see that character progression if nothing else. Um I think it like I said, it was probably my biggest pleasant surprise. Um I'm going to I'm going to add into that um, and we'll talk about Marion, I think, in a little bit with one of your other fixes is I was a little bit disheartened by how quickly everybody just kind of like forgave and forgot. Like, I feel like that could have that could have been really additive to see some more progression and kind of growth there rather than just we're a happy family now. Um, so like that 
you know, as, as like a family oriented person, like, of course I'm going to love seeing that, but I want to see that path and that growth and I want to see it earned a little bit more. And I think that's, that's absolutely fair. All right, Chris. So that uh, brings us to your um, next improvement for the movie. How would you fix it? Um, so my final one, the the one that like I was I was sitting pretty with two until we got to like the third act of the film, and I was just like, you know what? I'm only coming away with two fixes. I'm feeling pretty good. And then we get to the scene where, um, we have massacred natives, and I think, um, so to, to kind of jog your memory, perhaps if you didn't watch this in prep for this episode is you have um, the scene in the Amazon rainforest where you have a native tribe and they are ready to attack Indian company um, until they come out with the crystal skull and they show it and like they let them pass or whatever. And so then you have inevitably arena and the Ruskies on their tail and you're like, you know, how are they going to get past them? And then, of course, they massacre all of the natives. And we just have this one shot of dead natives. Um, and I think that, you know, we've we've gotten a lot better, I'd like to think, over the past 15 years. Um, but, but, you know, just a scene of massacred natives, it's, it's, it's tone deaf for me. It comes off as gratuitous of like... Of course, that's what happened in real history. But do I need to see that? No, absolutely not. So I would I would completely remove that scene. Um, or if you want to fix it, you could just have them coming in with firearms and like the, the natives backing away if you want to fix that. But just that one shot, I think it, it really was just disheartening to me. Yeah, you know, it's fair to say that these movies have a fraught relationship with uh, natives, period, across the board. Looking right? at you, the Temple. Movie series does. Yeah, looking at Temple big time. But I think it's also fair to say, um, not, not excusing it in any way, shape, or form, but it is definitely an attempt to harken back to, to that serial storytelling that George Lucas is so in love with, right? Um, that's the, the the root and of that, Star Wars as well. It, that's you know what? It might be the root of some of the most problematic things that that George Lucas has, you know, introduced into this. A lot of that Temple of Doom stuff. Uh, if you do some research, um, you see. I, I'm 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 blanking on the the interpretation of Temple of Doom, but like you see, it, it's almost like a page for page kind of recreation of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it is. You're exactly right. And so um, I, I find it deeply uncomfortable too. And I think in, in 2008, of all things, I think they probably should have known better, you know, uh, than to go go this route. Um, but I also think that it, um, again, not excusing it. I don't think it's malicious. I think they are, I think they're trying to recreate a very specific style of storytelling. And this is how natives were treated in those you know 30s and 40s serials so they're trying to recreate that i don't think that is essential to create the vibe of those kinds of stories um and i think it probably would have been best to omit something like this from this movie yeah yeah i don't think it's malicious i just like i said i think it's gratuitous and unnecessary i tend to agree yeah absolutely all right uh dave i'm interested to see your third and final fix here because at first, I was just like, so so. So here's the thing: is it almost like kind of formed my judgment, and it's like, 
and I, I agreed and disagreed and it was almost like fluctuating as I watched the film. Yeah. So my biggest problem, I think with the movie, besides the, the, the just dirty rotten CGI of it all <laughs> is that, that just, just too many darn characters in this movie. Um, and many of them don't solve it. They don't really serve a very clear purpose in the grand scheme of things, if that makes sense. So uh, you take a character like Mac, for example, who annoys the living daylights out of me. Um, not because the performance is bad or anything, but the performance is really good. Um, but because of the constant, you know, double, triple, quadruple crossing stuff, it just becomes so tired and boring and it doesn't really lead to anything significant in the grand scheme of the story. So I almost feel like Mac is, is a character that could be very easily eliminated. Um, and then you have the, then you have the hurt of it all. And I don't know how you have John Hurt in your movie, and you don't give him anything really substantial to do. He is like, he's like on my Mount Rushmore of actors. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen I Claudius, um, that that uh, maxi series that uh, was like a, I think a BBC and PBS co-production everything. By the way, if you've never nerd ever seen, uh, Roman. Uh, yes, I am. Uh, Roman history, dude. Patrick Stewart is in it. Okay, so I think he'll be fine checking it out sometime. He's really good in it too. But the act, the acting in that is so good because it's more like almost put on like a stage play. It's not a stage play, you know, but it's also not like Hollywood level, you know, uh, production values. So it's all carried by the acting, and Hurt eats that movie up. He is so good in every appearance that he has in that series. Hurt is incredible. And here he is reduced to, you know, he, he's reduced to, to what what's the, the scientist's name in Thor 2, the Dark World? Oh, Eric like, all Selvig. I needed was for, Selvig. Yeah. Selvig, that's right. All I needed was for him, to, for Oxley to be running around naked the whole time, right? Like, there is no, nothing, no significant contribution to the overall story arc or the theme of the movie or anything from this character. So you either give Oxley something significant to do or you eliminate this character as well. So when you start eliminating characters and cleaning things up, then you... He's almost a MacGuffin, wouldn't you agree? I agree. It's really weird to have a human MacGuffin to lead to the physical MacGuffin in the movie, right? So what what can you do then, right, when you're starting to eliminate characters? Well, you have to boil it down to the real theme of the movie. And what's the real theme of the movie? It's about family, right? I mean, that's what it's about. So if you're going to do a very, you know, sort of family kind of movie about this family coming back together, which I agree went a little too fast, but if you're eliminating some uh, characters, then you have a little bit more space for that. Um, I think the logical thing to do is to have a very similar setup from the movie, right? You have Mutt seeking out Indiana Jones. He needs, you know, help finding his mom. And then you have Marion kind of taking on the Oxley role, right? So not not necessarily like, oh, she's crazy and she's running around like a dodo, right? But more like she, you know, she's plagued by some kind of visions that are leading her somewhere. And and then, you know, you, you have her directly incorporated into the forward plot because Marion doesn't get a whole lot to do here either. Marion in Raiders was a very proactive character, right? So it's, it's very possible that, you know, she like worked for Oxley or knew Oxley real well, like they say in the movie, right? And then they go ahead and say, well, whatever Oxley had was passed on to her and she's now trying to, she goes out there and tries to 
to seek out the solution to this, this these visions she's having or something or something like that. And then you boil it down to the three main characters all moving towards a goal, right? Mutt wants to save his mom. He enlisted Indiana Jones. Mom is trying to get whatever's in her head out of her head. And they're all moving towards the same direction. And they're stuck with each other and have to work through, you know, their family issues. And then it's much cleaner and clearer. And it's not so cluttered with with unnecessary and distracting characters that don't really add anything to the theme or the overall plot, Chris. Yeah, I think for the most part, when it, you know... Like I said, watching all four of these is a lot more illuminating than just this one in a vacuum. And my overall thesis, I guess, is more Marion increases the enjoyment of the film for me. You know, looking back at Temple of Doom, and I think my greatest criticism of that, uh, and no disrespect to Kate Capshaw, but my greatest criticism of that film outside of the racism and the orientalism that takes place in that film is Willie's character is just it's nails on a chalkboard. We, we like the soundtrack of that film is just Kate Capshaw screaming. <laughs> like, ah, uh, it's, it's just, it's just frustrating. Um, and so I think any time that we get to, and, and I just saw an article, unfortunately, where Karen Allen said that she was disappointed by her limited role in Dial of Destiny. And so I'm, I'm not sure the disconnect here with, I don't feel like I'm unique in wanting more Karen Allen here. Am I, am I unique in that, Dave? Like more Marion is good? More Marion is good. More Karen <laughs> Allen in your life is good anyways, like... which brings... Which brings me back to something I've said previously. If you want to see my favorite, you know, uh, Karen Allen performance, you need to watch the uh, the Jeff Bridges vehicle Starman. Um, she is so good in that movie. Um, plays a grieving widow, and she is just like, just you take one look at her, and it's just like it rips your heart out emotionally. She is so so good in that movie. Her performance is just so stellar. Um, I'm just I'm a huge Karen Allen fan. I think I actually remembered her more uh, as a kid from Starman than I did than I did from Raiders, just because she left such an impression on me. I saw Starman first, I think, with my dad, and it left such an impression on me. Like she's just she's fantastic. No, no, man, that's Scotty Small's mom. Like that's how I know her from. Like where where she's like really oh god, she's just like mom, like. She's like, go get into trouble, not too much trouble, but like, go make friends. And like, I want you to have a good childhood and have fun and don't just sit in your room all the time. Like, uh, it's so great. Love her. But yeah, so I, I don't know how I really love John Hurt. And I don't, I feel like we could have done that without, see, a lot of it works for me like with the whole telepathy being like the final piece of human existence that we don't have is telepathy, you know, as an X-Men fan, I'm a telepath. Yep. You got me. I'm in like, that makes sense to me. Um, and it's such a sci-fi thing too, like telepathy of being this like deeply, it's almost like it's like the Holy grail is like, we want telepathy is like in a lot of sci-fi stuff. Um, and so, like, I get that whole vibe. I, I would have liked to have seen 
like a cure for that, like halfway through of like John Hurt. But like, yeah, so we we're we're doing all this postulating and everything uh, when it all started with Mac. And like the only additive thing that Mac gave me is when Indy says he's going to break his nose and then breaks his nose. That's the only moment that brought me joy that involved Mac was him getting assaulted. And so I, you know, at the opening, it was fine, but like, there's no connective tissue from any of the previous iterations of these films. So that turn didn't mean anything to me, you know, it was cheapened. And then like, he just keeps flip flopping back and forth. He has these, um, like discount Spidey tracers that he just keeps dropping. Like, no one notices these red blinking lights. Uh, it's just, yeah. So uh, it, it, I, I really don't need him. And then like, you know, it all leads up to him dying because he's too greedy. Like, well, yeah, but it didn't mean anything to me because he was a turncoat the whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so my, my thesis here is just eliminate some characters, tighten up the thematic approach to the whole family coming back together and trying to mend fences. And I think you end up with a with a much stronger and more satisfying movie and something that might even uh, have echoes of something like The Last Crusade, which is, you know, also about a, a father and a son, you know, trying to mend fences and was, getting back together. I was, texting, right? so, I was texting a friend and I was like, this is like the quintessential daddy issues movie. <laughs> like when I was watching Crusade. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you don't mind, Chris, there was one more thing I wanted to mention that I did not put on this yeah, list. Sure. Um, one of the other things that seems to irk people, if you look at the online discourse surrounding this movie, it's the aliens or <clears throat> interdimensional beings. Um, and I think that that is a, a wholeheartedly wrong take. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I totally agree. I totally wish, agree. I, I, I wish that they would have not tried to to sh- to, to kind of like be dodgy about it. And they're like, they're not really aliens. They're re- not really I wanted bad. them, yes. I like, wanted them to be extraterrestrials from another planet. Yeah. That is exactly right. Because that fits in perfect with the sci-fi uh, you know, themes and renaissance we really open, of the 1950s. We open at movies. Area 51. Of course you know, it's aliens. It, 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 it should have been leaning much stronger into the notion of aliens and the paranoia and the fear from the 50s and how that how that fear of extraterrestrials was a metaphor for the fear uh, that came from the Red Scare and communism. Like, like you can lean into so some really rich thematic stuff there. But it, it almost felt like it leaked that, you know, there's going to be aliens in this movie and everybody hated it online. And then they were like, well, well, we'll we, we can't reshoot the movie, but we'll just say they're not really aliens. They're interdimensional beings, you know, like that's like they should have really leaned into the 1950s alien of it all. You know, is, is that any more weirder out there than a guy hunting for the Holy Grail? I mean, no, no, no. On, when man. it's Judeo-Christian imagery melting people's faces off, it's fine. But when it's aliens, nope. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to me, that is not something that needs fixing. Uh, the only thing that that needed was to lean much harder Commit, into that. Commitment. Um, Which yes, commitment, commit commitment and, and, in an Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so uh, here we are. Uh, any final words on this movie, Chris? I, I, I'm so glad you added that last bit because I think it's an overall sentiment that I, I agree with. 
this movie is far too hated on. Like it, 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 it absolutely should not be as maligned as it is. I think, you know, just jogging my memory of like maybe it's recency bias having recently reviewed these it's kind of tied with last crusade for like my second slash third favorite of the four like temple of Doom. temple of doom is clearly in last place even though there are elements like i said the action set pieces short round carries that movie carries that movie and so like there are elements that i i enjoy about temple of doom um, maybe we should fix that. Maybe we should fix that. I'm just saying. Uh, 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 that that would be a good one. Yeah. So I I really love this movie, and I think it hit all the right notes for me. The the family oriented sap, and like I really mm. love this mm. movie. Mm. Have you been Have you been exposed uh, to any spoilers from Dial of Destiny online? N- no, I have not. Hmm. Yeah, I've run into a few things, and let's just say, um, although I hear good things about the overall movie of it all, if you're a sap for the family stuff, um, from what I'm hearing, this the movie is going to depress you a great deal. And that's um, and that's fine because families grow apart, and that's I'm okay with that. But if it's a good story, like in a nutshell, in a vacuum, this is a good story for me. Yeah, I like I like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull a lot more than than most people seem as well. Dude, I wish I could mention the spoiler because it's so relevant to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but I don't want to spoil the movie for you. But there is a there is a decision made in Dial of Destiny that I've been told about that is very very clearly a reaction to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and how fans feel about it, <laughs> and it just irks me to no end. I think it's just a really bad decision. It's it's, so. it's the Rise of Skywalker syndrome, I guess. <laughs> I yeah exactly. I think I think there's some Dial of Destiny stuff happening that is very much a Rise of Skywalker kind of thing. Um, so yeah, maybe once we see the movie, we can talk about it. But yeah, I like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull a lot more uh, than people give it credit for it too. But I wish that it's the biggest problem for me is just that darn CGI. Like it's just some more location shooting, some grit, some dirt, and this movie would have felt a lot more in line with the other Indiana Jones. Movies. I want to. I want to. While I've got you here, I want to pick your brain at something because. Um, inevitably, you know, the box office numbers are not, are not great for Dial of Destiny. And again, I have not seen it yet, but my kind of working thesis is, is Indiana Jones as a property doesn't have enough connective tissue to like young audiences today. Like not enough people uh, are like are sharing Indiana Jones with their kids. I feel like our students aren't talking about Indiana Jones. They don't know who Indiana Jones is. I was just curious your thoughts there. I think that's probably fair. I think that, look, look, it's not that this style of storytelling can't be popular. I think that this style of storytelling really is is do a comeback again. You know, that, that swashbuckling adventure thing. There's not been a lot of that. I think the last one that really felt kind of swashbuckly adventure was probably the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And I'm very specifically, I'm singling out the first one because the other ones become a little self-important and have their own head up their own butts. But the first and a certain one, and a certain actor seeing, who shall not be named. Yeah. But the first one I remember seeing in theaters and I was like, holy crap, they finally got pirates right. This is really good. This is great adventure storytelling. I'm really loving this. I did not like that the, the rest of the series nearly as much. Um, but I, I think uh, 
I think if you had a great example of this kind of storytelling, uh, but but something that'll connect more to the young people because it's more recent, if you if they announced uh, a National Treasure three and brought Nicolas Cage back, I think there'd be more excitement for well, that. Well, that's because everybody watched it in class when we had free days. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, no, no, I don't know. How well they, did the more... series, how well did the Disney Plus series do? Because I totally forgot, like it was suggested, like I totally forgot that that existed. I think the Disney Plus series kind of fizzled out. It's like sort of a non-entity. I don't think anybody even really talks about it, what they liked or didn't like. I see no discourse on it or anything. I think... Um, the big problem was just that it lacked Nicolas Cage. It's very much an Indiana Jones movie, uh, Indiana Jones series without Indiana Jones in it. You know what I mean? Like Nicolas Cage's uh, Benjamin Gates is that series. But I think if they would announce another one of those, I think there would be a lot more hype for something like that than for Indiana Jones. There's been so much distance between the original trilogy and those new two. Heck, there's been so much distance between Crystal Skull and Dial of Destiny now. I mean, How has it been 15 years? Oh my God. Dude, my entire teaching career, like 2008 when Crystal Skull came out is when I started my teaching job. Like my entire teaching career has passed so far. Like half of, I'm halfway to retirement <laughs> and then we got another Indiana Jones movie. Like the, the, literally there are high school kids that weren't alive when the last Indiana Jones movie came out. Like it's, it's definitely making another one is definitely trading in nostalgia for a very specific generation. Um, and I don't think that generation is as into theaters anymore as they used to be. I mean, I find myself as much as I love the theater experience sitting at home and watching, you know, stuff on the screen more often than going to the theater because we've, my butt we've is, been, you know, uh, we've been antisocial these well, days. We, we've also been priced out. Like I took my kids to see across the spider verse and it was over a hundred dollars. Like it, and so it yeah, has to yeah. be like I mean, a once in a while that you take everybody to, you know, maybe I can sneak away to yeah, go see a yeah. movie or something, but yeah. 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 It's exactly right. When you're the generation that has kids and has to drag those along to every movie too, then those things become expensive. So I don't know. Um, I think, I think we're due a, a new property that uses this kind of storytelling. Um, but I think it's also fair to say, as much as I love Indiana Jones, that this franchise has run its course. Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. The guy's 80 years old. There's not going to be, um, you know, there should not be more Indiana Jones movie without movies without Harrison Ford. I'm not of the camp that thinks that this is a place to recast. Um, there are roles I think can be recast fine, but I don't think this is one. It's too think, too tied up with I the don't, actor. I don't, I don't have a desire to. Like, I don't. I'm not I'm not interested in that. But I do think but I do think this kind of storytelling is do a comeback. I, I think we I think we need this kind of swashbuckling adventure stuff um on the big screen. Even just a contrast with, with all this crazy CGI stuff. Like if they made a sort of an adventure movie um that was, you know, focused on, on practical special effects and exotic location shoots and stuff, I think I think there would be a big response to that. All right, there you have it, folks. Uh, Stick around, because after a quick break, we'll be back with some nerd commendations. We're back, and we're talking about nerdy media that you need. Trust us, we know what we're talking about in this week's Nerd Commendations. 
Now, Chris, I am not surprised that you ended up enjoying this at all. Okay, so this comes with a caveat. Um, so this started way back about two years ago, I want to say. When did we get first news of that initial? Um, it's been a couple yeah, of years. It's been a couple yeah. of years. And then we saw the trailer here recently, like a month or so ago. But um, count this as like nerd commendation 27 <laughs> of Xbox Game Pass. Because I found all three of uh, the Fable games on Game Pass. Now, the first one, absolutely greatly enjoyed. However, I struggled because there was not something very simple that the second and third one have. It's that little glowing trail that points you to the objective. And so I found myself wandering aimlessly around. And I play, I put a good 12 to 13 hours in Fable Anniversary Edition, the first one. But I ultimately got too frustrated. Um, I, I may try it again. Um, but I also don't like uh, games where I have to, you know, have YouTube on speed dial with like tutorials and walkthroughs, um, especially for a game that's probably 20 years old. Um, but the second and third one I'm all in on, um, uh, and maybe it's just that simple thing, but like the whole premise of fable of decision based gaming and choices having consequences, um, were really, really great. So I have completed fable two. Um, and I think fable three, I started the other day. I think I, I enjoy it even more. Um, maybe by the simple fact that I can't do this Cossack style dance and the entire village wants to marry me and I can't even go in my own house with, with peace, like in Fable 2. Like you just do the most random things and the entire village falls in love with you and is like pushing your wife aside because they want to marry you as well. So I can't marry you all. Um, it's not a compound. But <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> but So I really greatly enjoyed Fable 2 and and playing around with like the skills um and leveling that stuff up but i'm telling you what and maybe this i'm i'm judging it too soon but like i'm i'm loving fable 3 even more and you know the storyline is captivating uh you're you're the child based on your choice and in my case i chose the female protagonist so i'm playing as the daughter of my previous character um and uh, it's just really captivating storytelling. It makes sense. It's like the 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 humor is kind of dark and twisted, but like like it's still almost like juvenile. Like you can fart in the town square and disgust the you know everybody. Um, you know, gaining items and then turning around and trying to like resell them at a profit when things are on sale. Like there's just so much. It's like such vast um you know possibilities with these games so so the fable franchise get yourself ready for the new one whenever it releases um uh, particularly two and three no no fable anniversary edition gave me some enjoyment i just got kind of lost in the shuffle and got disheartened a little bit so i want to be authentic in my nerd commendation but two and three really leveled up for me yeah, I love Fable. I had a, I have a lot of fond memories of the first one in particular. I used to play it on a on a PC that was a little underpowered, but I got it running on there anyways um, when I first dipped my feet uh, back into PC gaming after many years. And I, I have very fond memories of the first one, but I like the whole series and I'm really excited for the second one. And I'll wholeheartedly echo your nerd commendation. I think 
I think two in particular is a really good revisit. I think there's some stuff in three that irked me back in the day. Um, uh, and I and I think if you're willing to sit down with like a guide or a walkthrough or something to help you out a little bit, I think one is still a very enjoyable experience too. Um, yeah, it's a great series and I can't wait for the new one. All right, Dave, uh, your nerd commendation, I am geeked and I didn't get a chance to watch it yet because I was kind of busy watching four Indiana Jones films. Yeah, that'll do it, man. Uh, that'll keep you busy. Uh, so we have a new Superman cartoon, My Adventures with Superman. The first two episodes were released as of this recording just a few days ago. Um, and obviously, as a huge Superman fan, I checked them out and I am officially in love. Uh, this is an absolute blast of a series. The animation is fun. It's very anime inspired, which I think is uh, is actually a really cool direction to take for Superman. Um but I think the thing that I love the most about it is how tonally it seems to be um, sort of a complete refutation of anybody who's ever said that Superman needs to be more realistic or dark or gritty or anything like that. Um, Superman in here is is just Clark Kent is a giant dork. I mean, that's what he is. He's just a big old lovable dork. Um as Superman, he is exactly what you expect him to be. Uh, he very much in the vein of a classic Superman. Um, he, you know, starts off the first episode rescuing a cat for crying out loud. Um, at the uh, end of the second episode, there's a big, uh, big fight with lots of property damage and cars being thrown around. And after the fight is over, he actually uses a super speed to try to straighten everything back out. So there's not all that property damage. It's just, it's a very, very, very Superman show. I like that they're leaning strongly into the friendship between uh, that is, uh, you know, a very important element that too many people discount as a part of the Superman mythos. Um, and I absolutely, absolutely adore this version of Lois Lane. I think they basically took sort of the spunk of Lois Lane and turned it up to 11. Uh, here she is uh, an intern at the Daily Planet, desperate to prove herself as a reporter. Um, she has this pixie haircut and it looks really cool. It's, I think, the first time I've seen a Lois Lane interpretation with that short of hair. And I love how romantic it is. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of tension, I guess you could say, between Clark and Lois right from the get-go. Uh, you know, the, they look at each other a certain way. They blush when they say certain things. It's very much like... Um, romantic in that way and i appreciate that because i always like the interpretations that go with lois develops feelings for clark not superman you know um because uh you know then then you kind of get in the realm of well lois is lois lane is in, is in love with the powers not the man right and so taking this route i think is much more interesting uh, very clearly, we're, 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 you know, at the early goings of the show, but after two episodes, I very, very much like this. It's bright, it's colorful, it's hopeful, it's optimistic, um, it's funny, it's very, very funny in places. Uh, so as far as, like, Superman stories go, this is exactly the kind of thing I've been looking for, and I hope that at least some of this energy rubs off on James Gunn's Superman legacy, um, because that, I think that would be a great deal of fun to see on the big screen. David, you didn't tell me yes. that Bradward Boimler himself is, is Clark Superman. Kent. Yes. Oh my god. And he's and he's perfect in the role. And he sounds nothing like, like Boimler. Like his voice acting is superb. This is this is superb. a Jack Quaid superfan podcast. 
<laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> no, yeah, he's he yeah he he's Superman, and he is spot on in this. Like I have to say, as far as voice acting goes, this is a very very cool take on on Superman. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling is, you, man, that this is, is one nepo this is worth baby. The price That's one. That is one nepo baby that we support. I'm totally about this one. Yes, let, let's let's keep him. We him we can keep. Um, yeah, but there's just there's so many cool things about this, Chris. There's there's a, a lot of in dude. You know they take the anime inspiration like to the next level when he goes like into the spaceship that he arrived on Earth in, and like the spaceship gives him the Superman suit, and it looks like a magical girl anime transformation. I, kn- you know? I knew you were gonna love this. <laughs> I knew you were gonna love this when I saw that preview clip, and I was like, you love Sailor Moon and Superman, so like this is perfect. Yes, yes. I, I grew up on I grew up on Sailor Moon and as a kid I absolutely adored that that the original anime, the, the whole two hundred episode run. Um and so uh yeah, this is this is just cool, man. It's just it's very it's very, very Superman at the end of the day, though, even with the anime inspirations and everything, it feels like Superman. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, I'm totally here for this. Uh okay, we need to hurry up and wrap this up because I got some more Fable three to play and watch this show. All right. Sounds like a plan, man. So if you like this episode, then you need to get on your favorite podcasting platform. You need to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. We are available on all major podcasting platforms and our very own website, nerdbywork.com. And after 157 episodes, I almost have this like memorized, but we're going to have to switch it up, Dave. You can find us on a whole bunch of different social media platforms. Let's see. Twitter, Instagram, Hive, Blue Sky, uh, Threads, at Nerd by Word. <laughs> there we go. And individually, at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris on some of those platforms. Yeah, so I really... Okay, so peek behind the curtain. I run the social stuff. He does the editing stuff. So if you see at Nerd by Word firing off some questionable takes, Dave is is absolved of that responsibility. So I didn't feel like setting up that Nerd Chris. Uh, on the Especially with Blue Sky, where we only get like one invite code. Uh, and I gave that to Dave. So yeah, Um As always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. 